All right, so tonight, Lord willing, we will conclude chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith of the Holy Scriptures. And as we do that, I just want to review one last time some of the basic principles that we've covered from this chapter so far. First of all, in chapter one, paragraph one, we discussed the necessity of Scripture. And Scripture is necessary not for man to have knowledge of God. That is sufficiently revealed to us in the created order itself. This is Paul's argument of Romans chapter 1. Rather, that creation, that general revelation, as it were, is only sufficient to condemn men, that that man might be without excuse. We need special revelation of the Scripture so that we might know the way of God uh, more fully and that we might know the way of salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, paragraph 4, we spoke of uh, Scripture's authority. And we said, uh, as the confession does, that the, the authority of the Scripture comes from the fact that it is the very Word of God. To the degree that when we say, Matthew writes in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, whatever the text might be, the Lord says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. This is the word of God, so that what the Bible says, God has said. In chapter 1, paragraph 5, we spoke about uh, how it is that we know the Bible is the word of God. And the way that we know the Bible is the word of God is ultimately because of the Holy Spirit testifying to us in our hearts that this is, in fact, the word of our good shepherd. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep know my voice, and to another they will not listen. We gave the illustration that it is much the same way that a newborn child knows who mom and dad are because the child knows their voice. In the same way, when we hear the Bible read and preached, we as those who have been born of the Spirit know that it is the Word of God. Now, this faith is not a blind faith that is merely based on that feeling, to a subjective feeling. It is not a, a blind faith that is to be untested, but there are several other evidences by which the scripture makes abundantly clear that it is the very word of God. And again, I would refer you to uh, Dr. Michael Kruger and his work on the the self-authenticating model of revelation. His book, Canon Revisited, uh, is wonderful on this very topic, so I I won't go into it much further than that. But there, there are several evidences by which the scriptures evidence itself to be the word of God, one of which Uh, is listed in the confession as the efficacy of the doctrine. That is namely just the testimony of the countless people over thousands of years that have had their lives changed by faithful reading and study of the Word of God. And then also last time we spoke of uh, the, the idea of Scripture. Not everything that's necessary is is expressly set down in scripture that is it doesn't always say it on the surface of the text but also those things which may be deduced from good and necessary consequences are authoritative and and we used 
the example of of doctrine such as the Trinity. The Bible expressly says that there is one God. The Bible expressly refers to the three different distinct persons as God. And the Bible expressly says that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. And therefore, when we, when we put all of that information together, the good and necessary consequence is the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who is revealed in three persons, none of whom are partly God, but all of whom are fully God. That is good and necessary consequences. And, and so those sections, they deal with scripture in theory as to what it is and, and, and how to handle it. But in these final four paragraphs, we'll look at how we use scripture in practice. You might think about it this way. The first half of chapter one tells you what scripture is. The second half tells you how to use it. And we'll consider four things from these from this chapter tonight. First of all, the clarity of Scripture. Second of all, the purity of Scripture. Thirdly, the right method of interpretation of Scripture. And fourthly and finally, the proper role of Scripture. So first of all, the clarity of Scripture. Uh, not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Second uh, Peter chapter 3 says this. Peter writes in verse 15, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. And in other words, Peter is saying, I know that you have received word from Paul. There are some things that Paul writes that are hard to understand. But that is the way it is with Scripture. So when we speak of the clarity of Scripture, we're not saying that, that everything is equally plain. But rather, that the things that are necessary to be known for salvation are plain. The, the Confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 7, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. The, the lack of clarity on some things is, is the reason why uh, there can be good and godly men who, who disagree about matters of eschatology or church government or the sacraments. And, and each one of them will, will point to the Bible. That's not to say that the Bible doesn't have a stance on that issue. I am a, a convinced Presbyterian. I believe that the Bible teaches that there is to be a plurality of elders in the churches and that other churches are to be accountable to one another. I believe the Bible teaches Presbyterianism. I am a convinced amillennialist. I believe that the Bible divides history into this present evil age and the one that is to come. And, and I cannot be convinced otherwise on that. I am a convinced 
Pado-Baptist. I believe that baptism is rightly administered to the children of professing believers. However, I am willing to surrender the fact that not everyone who faithfully believes the Bible comes to the same conclusion that I do on those things, even though I believe the Bible teaches them. It is to say that what, what, what the Bible is undeniably clear on are those matters that are uh, essential to salvation, which is why we can lock arms with brothers and sisters in Christ who have all repented of their sin and trusted in the finished work of Christ, of Christ for salvation, because that is so plainly laid down in scripture. There's, there's no interpretation needed of a verse like John chapter five, verse 24, where Jesus says, truly, I say unto you, all who believe in me have passed from death and into life or John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is plain and on the surface. You are on the way to perishing, but if you believe on the Lord Jesus, you can have everlasting life. Or Paul in Ephesians 2, 8-10, through 10, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast, but it is the gift of God. That is explicit and clear. Salvation is by the grace of God received through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what the confession is saying. All things uh, that are necessary for salvation are clearly propounded to the degree that the learned or the unlearned, someone with a with an MDiv or a PhD or a demon or whatever other degree, and the guy who's reading his Bible for the first time can clearly see these things are so. So when Roman Catholics assault the doctrine of sola scriptura and say that it leads to schism, the reality is that that's a straw man argument. No one said that every single doctrine in the Bible uh, is, is, is sufficiently plain. We have fundamental unity, though, with our Baptist and Lutheran and Methodist and, and Anglican friends who are theologically conservative because we agree that the Bible is absolutely clear that salvation is all of God's grace and that grace is received through faith. The Bible is absolutely clear that it is by God's grace that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that his righteousness is imputed to us. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. The Bible is clear. In fact, if you look at the Augsburg Confession of Faith, which is the Lutheran Confession, or the Helvetic, or the Belgic Confessions, or the 39 Articles, which are uh, confessions of, of the Reformed Church and, and, the, and the Anglican Church, or even the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, you will find that all of these different Protestant sects, as it were, are in fundamental agreement about these essential doctrines of the faith. Why is that? Because the Bible is sufficiently clear on them. Such that, as the confession says, an unlearned person in the due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Some other matters are, are a little bit less clear on, but the, the gospel of salvation in Christ could not be more clear. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. Acts 4.12 Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus and that alone. 
Now, what about the purity of Scripture? Well, there are three things that you have to know about the purity of Scripture from chapter 1, section 8. First of all, it applies to the original languages. Chapter 1, section 8 begins this way. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, and by his singular care and providence have been kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So the first thing to know is that when we speak of the infallible nature of Scripture, we're speaking of what flowed from the pen of Paul or John or Moses or Jeremiah. That is what God breathed out, and that is what is infallible. Uh, sometimes you've heard Dr. Phillips or myself, we would will address the Greek or the Hebrew in our sermons. And we try not to do that very much because, as you'll see later in this paragraph, we want you to have confidence in your English Standard Version or your New King James Version or even your New International Version. You have reliable translations. But, and by and large, all of the variations uh, within them are, are, are merely just highlighting different emphases of the same thing. Nonetheless, it is possible that translations can make a mistake. So when we speak of the infallibility of Scripture, it pertains to the original autographs. Now, the next thing it says is, by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages. And if you want to see proof of God's divine preservation of the Bible, you can you can look up uh, charts, or I, I believe I've handed out to the class, um, charts that would show the reliability of the New Testament as compared to other works from the same time. And if you look at these charts, you'll see that the New Testament, frankly speaking, has no peer. There is nothing even remotely close to, to it in the same time frame that has the number of copies and closest to the original. So of the New Testament, we have, now this is an old figure, we've got more now, but, but we have at least 5,366 manuscripts, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. The closest in number. From another work of around that same time that we have is 20 copies of Tacitus. 20. Versus 5,000. It is overwhelming. And by the way, the earliest copy of, the, of, of Tacitus that we have is 1,000 years after he wrote it. Contrast that with we have fragments of the New Testament that are within 50 years of the writing. There is no peer, and there is no better explanation for that than the fact that God has divinely preserved his word. The, the proof is in the numbers. And, and the fact that we have so many manuscripts is actually what gives us such great confidence that we know exactly what it is that men like Paul and Matthew and John wrote. Are there variations amongst the manuscripts? Yes. There are. There are variables. Not all of them read exactly the same. Are they substantive? No, they're not. Almost all of them have to do with spelling errors or some type of uh, a flip in the word order that does not change the meaning of the text. And because we have so many copies, it is easy to decipher where the error came from and which one is wrong. The sheer volume uh, testifies to, uh, to, 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 to a faithful and accurate reading. 
Uh, I, I often use this illustration. If I've got um, 100 uh, handwritten uh, directions to get from from here to to Cracker Barrel, and, and of those 100 handwritten instructions, 99 of them say take 385 north, and one of them says take 385 south. It is very easy to rule out the variant in there that I originally had wanted people to go north and there was one copy because it was written by hand that said 385 South. That's the kind of idea that we have that the sheer number of manuscripts helps us to know for certain what is the, uh, the authentic original reading. Now, because God does not expect you to learn Greek and Hebrew and become textual critical scholars, it is appropriate, as the confession says, to have the Bible translated into the language of the people. <clears throat> the confession goes on and says, because the original tongues, Hebrew and Greek, are not known to all the people of God who have a right unto and interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they, that is the original languages, are to be translated into the vulgar or the common language of every nation unto which they come. That, for this reason, that the word of God, dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner, and, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, may have hope. God doesn't expect you to become a Greek and Hebrew scholar to be able to read his word. He gives it to you in your language, working through uh, his church and through Bible translators and things of that nature. <clears throat> and how do we know that, it, that it's acceptable to, to hold a translation of the Bible and say, thus saith the Lord? Well, again, the answer to that is quite simply because Jesus and the apostles did. Because they would commonly, regularly quote the Old Testament as God has said, as the Holy Spirit says. But they're quoting not the Hebrew that it was originally written in. They're quoting the Greek translation that was popular at that time, the Septuagint. And therefore we know that translations are a credible uh, source uh, so long as they're done faithfully. And we can say, this is the word of God. Now, what is the right method of interpreting scripture? Hopefully you've heard this before, but I'll read chapter 1, paragraph 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is the scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. This is called the analogy of faith, the, 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 the model that Scripture interprets Scripture. And what they're saying is, is, is pretty straightforward, that when you come to a, a portion of the Bible that you're unsure about, it's, it's not clear to you what it's saying, but at least you can tell conceptually what the subject is, you can search that out by checking another part of Scripture that addresses that subject more clearly. The, the, the fact of, of using the Bible to interpret the Bible is incredibly helpful. Uh, one, one really 
uh, important example to see this from is if you flip in your Bible to James chapter 2, James chapter 2, and I'll pick it up in verse 14, well, here's something that might be a little uh, concerning for our good Protestant and Reformed ears. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James goes on. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James explicitly just said, we are justified by works. There is no getting around it. That is what he wrote. But we also know that Paul says repeatedly, in passages like Galatians 2 and verse 16, that we are justified by faith and not by works. So, so how do we, and they both, by the way, both Paul and James at various places will point to the example of Abraham. So, so how do we, how do we reconcile this? Well, we let scripture interpret scripture. And so if we look at James's argument here, he quotes from two passages in the life of Abraham. He says that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. That passage is in Genesis 22. Then he says, thus was confirmed that Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness from Genesis 15. So what's the point? Which comes first, Genesis 22 or Genesis 15? That's right, Genesis 15 comes first. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that belief and that righteousness was demonstrated in his works. So the works verify, they vindicate the faith. And when we have that understanding, then there is no contradiction between James and Paul. Because Paul in Ephesians 2, where he says, we're justified by grace through faith. He then goes on in verse 10 and says, for, why were we justified by grace through faith? For... Verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So, so Paul agrees with James that we are justified by grace through faith. And then the fact that that happens, has happened, is, is verified, is demonstrated in the good works that we do in our lives. This interpretation is also borne out 
by by the uh, author to the to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter eleven, beginning in verse seventeen, where he writes, "By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up." His only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, the the whole work of offering Isaac up was because of the faith that he had. It was the demonstration and the outworking of the faith that he had in the promise of God. This is the benefit of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. When there's a confusing portion that we come across, we look at other texts and we get a more well-rounded picture. In the same way that 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 we, we interpret certain scenes in a movie in light of the context of the film. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's it's helpful. Uh, the the movie Inception, the climax of the movie, the final scene is Leonardo DiCaprio spinning his token on the table. And the token is spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. And then the scene goes to black and they roll credits. (coughs) Out of context, that scene is not exciting. That scene does not have you on the edge of your seat. It's just a top spinning. What's the big deal? Well, when we interpret that scene through the rest of what the movie has revealed to us about the significance of whether or not that token stays spinning or if it falls, then we know whether or not the scene that was just prior to that of him reuniting with his kids was real or was it a dream. We interpret the scene through the rest of the movie in the same way we interpret difficult or obscure passages of Scripture through the lens of the rest of the Bible. Finally then, the proper role of Scripture and this is very, very straightforward and should not be news to anyone in any kind of Reformed background. Chapter 1, paragraph 10. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. The proper role of Scripture is to be the final authority. It doesn't matter ultimately what the Catholic Church says. It doesn't matter ultimately what Second Presbyterian Church of Greenville says. It doesn't matter what any preacher on TV says, or it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what anyone says if those things don't comport with Scripture. That's not to say that we totally ignore authorities or theologians that God has placed over us. God has given us them to learn from. But it is to say that the scripture has the final word. It is as Martin Luther famously said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, and by clear reason I am bound by the scriptures, I have quoted, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant, for to go against God and conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. The word of God is the final determinative authority on all matters of faith and practice. Let's pray. 
God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, that it is clear, that it is pure, that it is sufficient. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be those who would build our lives on the firm foundation of the word that you have given us through your prophets, through your apostles. And Lord, would you help us to trust it and to be changed by it. We ask in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.